the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's give a big hand, so long as you're not driving, to our man, the myth, the legend, the one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. You can give it one hand uh, if you're driving. That's okay, just (laughs) for a second. Then go back to 10 and 2. 10 and 2. 10 and Um, 2. Yeah, Max uh, is our own kind of god of deception here. He's a real Loki-esque figure, a real puckish fellow. (laughs) And uh, they called me Ben. You're Noel, and Noel, you and I have been excited about today's episode for quite some time. We love stories about espionage. We love learning these um, often often obs- like obscured in the modern day tales of what really happened behind the scenes. Well, it's so interesting now, especially, I mean, you know, we're living in a, obviously a different time than the early days of the Cold War, but we're uh, grappling with some very similar paranoia, uh, either around, you know, things like existential threats like climate change, uh, obviously now with uh, with Vladimir Putin really kind of um, puffing his chest out and, and pushing forward into Ukraine. You know, when that first happened, I think a lot of people were like, well, if he's going to do that, what's he going to do next? Mm-hmm. And then what's, what's he going to do after that? And then what are we, you know, where do we fit into this equation? And so, you know, the Cold War was a time where it was hard to trust people because there was just a lot of concern that someone who you might think was your neighbor could actually be, you know, a red spy. And how how apropos that you bring this up, Noel, because uh, you and I have become fascinated recently by a novel called Gods of Deception and 
uh, as you know, fellow ridiculous historians, we like to go to the source whenever we have questions, whenever we want to learn more. Uh, we had, in full disclosure, kicked around off the air a couple of ideas about episodes surrounding a gentleman named Alger Hiss, which will be familiar to some, but maybe not all, of our listeners today. And no, you and I had this moment where we looked at each other. We're talking about Alger Hiss. We're, ta- we're talking about Hiss. We're talking about this book. And um, we were fortunate enough, lucky enough, to join with the author, the historian, the creator of this and many other works, Mr. David Adams Cleveland. David, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, Ben, it's my pleasure. Now, you have, I don't want to make, I don't want to make it awkward. You and I were talking <laughs> before we started rolling today, and I said, I'm going to try not to fanboy too much. But um, Noel and I are authors as well. And one thing that has always impressed me is the pursuit of literary fiction. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about what inspired you to create Gods of Deception? And then tell us a little bit about this story, because I hope I'm not the only person who was unaware of this before encountering your work. No, no, you got me too. I was unaware. <laughs> well, Ben, no, let me say, just say that the Alger Hiss affair has been something that's been on my radar screen since I was a kid. I can remember years, decades past, Bill Buckley having uh, various uh, guests on Firing Line and arguing about the uh, about the innocence or guilt of Alger Hiss. It was a huge, huge issue in this country. The trial was 1950, but for 50 years afterwards, it divided the country between those who thought Alger Hiss was an innocent uh, paragon of the, uh, of the New Deal, the State Department. He was president of the Carnegie Endowment, and half the country who thought he was a traitor. Uh, who had sat at the right hand of Roosevelt during the Yalta giveaway of Eastern Europe and a lot of other bad things. So this has been going on for quite a while. And in recent decades, in recent years, a lot of new information has come out. And the long and the short of it is that we now know that Hiss was not only guilty, he was guilty of crimes that went far beyond what he was actually charged for in the trial, which was passing uh, State Department documents in the late 1930s to Whitaker Chambers, who was his uh, Soviet military intelligence contact, right? So we now know that that was just, that was just the 10% of the iceberg. 90% of it was below the surface. Uh, we know that his and his uh, fellow spies in the Treasury Department and uh, the State Department and the White House even. There were 500 of them, at least, Stalin's willing agents uh, working in the 30s and 40s and early 50s to further the goals of the uh, Soviet Union. So there were 500 spies and a number that still boggles my mind. There were 200,000 members of the American Communist Party. 
in the day. And uh, they provided the infrastructure, the underground, the background, the support system for the 500 Soviet spies that were instrumental in the stealing of the uh, atom bomb secrets and a lot of other bad things that led to the Korean War and Pearl Harbor. So that's just a starter. And this is, of course, before the McCarthy hearings. I mean, that was when, you know, it became you were blacklisted if you were a member, if you were one of those (laughs) hundreds of thousands of Americans that uh, were a member of the Communist Party. So this is sort of like maybe one of the big trials that led to that kind of witch hunt mentality or what's where do you feel like that fits in to this story? Well, there's no question that the conviction uh, of Alger Hiss for spying uh, was a wake-up call to America. It also happened at the same time that uh, the Soviets tested their first atomic bomb. It was also at the time that uh, the Red Chinese Mao Zedong uh, took over China. It was also right before the uh, outbreak of the Korean War. So all of these played into um, the spy frenzy, the the red baiting uh, 1950s. The truth of the matter is, is that there were then a lot of spies. There were 500 of them that we now know. There were, in fact, 200,000 Americans who had been part of the uh, Communist Party. By the 1950s, Most of those members had kind of slunk away and disappeared into the woodwork, and most of the spies had either been been shown up and so had also disappeared or had been the few that had been convicted. So by the 1950s, it was kind of a done deal. It was over. The damage had long been done. But they didn't know that in the 1950s. There was still a feeling that the U.S. was under threat. It wasn't as much under threat as it had been, but it was still there. So it was a very ambiguous time. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, 
a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now. Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. One thing that I think is fascinating about Hiss's early life or his, you know, his trajectory uh, that is, um, I think, quite an informative here is that David, he has all the makings of the ideal asset for a, a foreign intelligence agency. I mean, this is a guy who was a clerk in the Supreme Court. He was a, um, oh, he was, of course, as you mentioned, uh, involved with State Department, later became a UN official. He was also, uh, I believe, a graduate of Harvard. Is that correct? And Johns Hopkins, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Not to mention uh, a real smoke show. Real, real good-looking man. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. The, the, the interesting thing is that Alger Hiss and a lot of his uh, underground uh, colleagues uh, were all Harvard graduates. There were a lot of them. It wasn't just Hiss. And that's something I think that might surprise many people unfamiliar with the story, because often in the public sphere, when people think in terms of espionage and spycraft, uh, they think in terms of some kind of deep cover, very ordinary, possible mid-level bureaucrat. They don't necessarily think of people who are at the wheels of the halls of power. Could you tell us a little bit about um, Hiss's evolution toward becoming a spy? As, as you said, you know, um, there was a lot of information that only came out after the fact. Is there a moment in this man's life or a, a frame of time where he encountered 
some sort of ideology or event that um, persuaded him. Turned him. That yeah. turned him. That's a great question. And uh, the answer is, is that nobody really knows for sure because his is unique among the great major spies. If you look, for instance, at the uh, British Cambridge Five, the great spies, Kim Philby, Donald McLean, Anthony Blunt, uh, John Cancross, they all fled to the Soviet Union. Uh, they all spent their last days at their dachas outside of uh, Moscow. They admitted that they had been spies, and they were under such pressure during the days of their spying. They were traitors to their country. They were traitors to their to their class. Uh, that they were all alcoholics. They literally drank themselves into early graves. So we have a pretty good idea about when they became uh, communists, mostly in their their days at Cambridge, uh, and they were active communists. Uh, and in, in support of the Soviet Union from day one. We don't know that much about Alger Hiss. He managed to keep his affiliations under wraps. Only Whitaker Chambers, the guy who found him out and who was his, was his spy handler and uh, who uh, was, was in the trial uh, against Alger Hiss, he was the only person who really knew Alger Hiss when he was reading up on Lenin and in Marxist study groups and that kind of things. So we know that that went on, but we don't know from Alger Hiss or any of his um, contemporary uh, spies or agent or Communist Party members exactly how that evolution took place. But it was quite clear that for his to get where he got in the highest reaches of the State Department, he couldn't show any of that. If he was caught reading uh, the New Masses magazine or the Communist Manifesto or the works of Lenin, that would have come up in his security clearance. So he was obviously very careful um, not to display anything like that that would have um, brought uh, issues in terms of his security clearance. But the amazing thing is, is that Alger Hiss maintained his innocence literally to his dying day. He went to jail for four years. He came out and again, he tried to undo uh, his conviction and uh, tried again and again to appeal his conviction, was unable to do so. Um, but to his dying day, with the greatest equanimity, maintained his total innocence. And that was a conviction for perjury, which is obviously a big deal, but it's not the same as treason, right? Well, the conviction was for perjury about lying about passing top secret State Department papers to Whitaker Chambers. So it amounted to, to, uh, to uh, espionage and uh, a traitorous activity, even though the, got they got him on the technical issue of perjury. Yes. I see. Uh, I've always wondered, you know, you talk about these 200,000 Americans that, you know, identified as members of the Communist Party at that time. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, complete affiliation with the Soviet Union or that they were spies or that they were in some way trying to bring down the government of the United States. I mean, isn't there some of those that just thought it was an interesting philosophy and, and found, you know, things in it that were functional that maybe they wanted to read about and that they were in, inspired by? It's a little bit hard to say because uh, 
most of the members of the American Communist Party uh, just faded into the woodwork and uh, didn't admit anything about their past. And most would say that uh, they were idealists. And in fact, the American Communist Party, it has to be said, was in the forefront of trying to get civil rights uh, reform early in, right. uh, in, the, in the 30s and 40s. They were really in the forefront for uh, calling for Voting Rights Act, end of desegregation, all of that good stuff. So there were a lot of good things that they believed in. But in fact, the Communist Party was in itself a secret organization dedicated to the overthrow of the American government. It was not a, a democratic party. They believed in revolution. They believed in overthrowing the U.S. government by one way or another. So even though a lot of the fellow travelers, uh, Communist Party members, believed in good things and wanted good things for the country, they nevertheless provided the underground uh, infrastructure, financing, and what have you for the um, for the American spies. So they were, you know, they they had their side to them that was pretty anodyne, but uh, on the other hand, uh, they also provided the underground for almost all the Soviet spies, and almost all the Soviet spies yeah. came out of the American Communist Party. So is fellow travelers a thing? Like, I've, I've not heard that term yes. used in this context before. Yeah, fellow travelers uh, is uh, sort of those little bit betwixt and between who are not quite members of the party, <laughs> Um, but on mm. the other hand, uh, we're kowtowing to most of the, the party discipline and the party's line uh, in terms of their attitudes uh, towards the Soviet Union and uh, the communist uh, movement around the world. So, I mean, one of Alger Hiss's spy compatriots was Harry Dexter White, who uh, worked in the Treasury Department. Now, Harry Dexter White, among other things, and Whitaker Chambers uh, knew this very well, was never actually a member of the American Communist Party. And if you're a member of the American Communist Party, you are under the discipline of the party, which basically means you're under the discipline of Moscow Central and the Soviet Union and Stalin and his, um, his, his band of brothers, right? So mm -hmm. Harry Dexter White was not under the discipline of the Communist Party, but he did, he did some of the more damage in some ways than even an Alger Hiss. Just as a brief example, uh, Harry Dexter White was uh, called into a meeting by his Soviet handler. This was in the summer of 1941. Viktor Pavlov was his name, was the Soviet handler in Washington, D.C. And he asked Harry Dexter White, to uh, have a meeting with him at uh, Old Abbott's Grill across the street from the Treasury Department in Washington. And uh, Pavlov says, I'll be carrying a copy of the New Yorker. That's how you'll recognize me. They'd never met in person. They had mm. lunch together at Old Abbott's Grill. And Pavlov, same Pavlov like the dog, you can remember that, pushed a piece <laughs> of paper across the table to Harry Dexter White and said, I want you to memorize what's on this piece of paper. And Harry Dexter White picked it up and looked at it and read it and nodded and nodded and nodded and was about to put it in his coat pocket and said, Pavel says, no, give it back to me. 
and he handed it back to Pavlov. And Pavlov said, do you remember everything that's on that piece of paper? And Harry Dexter White said, I do. I remember it and I will follow the orders explicitly. Well, what was in that piece of paper was known as Operation White, as in Snow White. This was a plan concocted by intelligence agencies of the Soviet Union to get Harry Dexter White to influence the po American policy towards Japan at this very precarious moment before Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese had been fighting the Soviet Union for years along the Soviet borders with Mongolia and uh, Manchuria. They had had uh, flare-ups there. Thousands of soldiers had been killed. It was a big deal. It was it was a it was a war by by any shape or form, and so the orders that Harry Dexter Watt got was to put pressure on the Japanese. He was the top guy, one of the highest officials in the Treasury Department. Put pressure on them. More sanctions on oil, steel war materials, rubber of all kind, ratchet up the pressure, ratchet up the pressure. And the idea mm -hmm. was that if the U.S. ratcheted up the pressure enough, the Japanese, instead of going west into Siberia, north into Siberia, would go east into the Pacific and would attack the U.S. and go south into Indonesia where the oil was. And mm -hmm. uh, Harry Dexter White pushed this policy for many, many months um, with his colleagues in the State Department and the Treasury. And what happened? They ratcheted up the pressure on the Japanese. It, precisely at the time that the U.S. Navy brass was telling Roosevelt, was telling the State Department, do not put pressure on Japan. We are not in a position to fight a war in the Pacific, much less a two-front war which we expect to be fighting against Germany any day now. Nevertheless, Harry Dexter White pushed this policy. We upped the ante with the Japanese, pushed them, and they made the decision to fight and go south to Pearl Harbor and the Pacific. So there is a specific example of a Soviet spy influencing uh, American policy that literally brought about Pearl Harbor. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental 
part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino <laughs> and I meant Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Yes, and this is this is something that I am I am so glad we're discussing today because uh, the geopolitical circumstances of Japan building up to that great conflict were I think for for the people in the know, the writing was on the wall. Japan was, uh, it was known, it wasn't a secret, Japan was resource poor in several key areas. And they would go, inevitably, one could argue, in one direction or another. And the way that you are describing this um this influence, this finger on the scale, right, of this uh, fellow traveler, I, I believe it's a story that needs to be told more often. And I, I'd like to res I, I'd like to return, David, to something that you mentioned that I think is going to catch a lot of our fellow ridiculous historians a bit flat-footed here. So, Alger Hiss, born 1904 doesn't pass away until 1996. As we always say, history is closer than um, many people would like to think, right? Perhaps Faulkner is right when he says the past isn't even past. But the thing that I, I really was drawn to is that the story doesn't end 
when Hiss goes to prison. He gets out of prison, and then people involved in the litigation, right? People involved in the in the legal proceedings by one way or another seem to meet with some abrupt ends. Could you tell us a little bit about Alger Hiss post-conviction, you know, or post-incarceration, excuse me, when he when he gets out, when he serves his time and um Let's see, he's released in 1954, is that correct? That's correct, yes. So he he is released, he's disbarred, he goes on to write his own book, I believe, uh, which is about, like you said, he maintains his innocence. But what was what was the fallout of this great discovery? You know, at this point, Uncle Sam has no choice but to acknowledge, yes, there is espionage occurring at the highest levels. Were there changes in U.S. policy regarding this? Um, were there further consequences for Hiss? What happened to some of the people? I'm, I'm thinking also specifically of the example of Lawrence Dugan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, who has a... Um, well, I, I don't want to I don't want to poison the well too much here, David. But uh, I believe he falls from a window under questionable circumstances. That's absolutely right. And this is actually one of the things that my reading of the history and doing my research for the book that I was profoundly amazed at. Uh, it was something that was spoken of at the time, but not too many people paid a lot of attention to it. But the fact is that a lot of the people around the Hiss trial, potential witnesses, disappeared in an unhappy ways. For instance, uh, you mentioned Lawrence Duggan. Lawrence Duggan was in the State Department with Hiss. He was actually, before Hiss, he was the golden boy of uh, Soviet intelligence. Uh, they had uh, a lot of money writing on Lawrence Duggan, they thought that he would prove to be the hiss um, in the State Department. But Lawrence Duggan got cold feet after a while. He was a very nervous character. But anyway, Lawrence Duggan would have been called as a witness to the Alger Hiss trial, who had obviously known Alger Hiss and had obviously known Alger Hiss as a communist and as a, and as a spy. But Lawrence Duggan never made it. He somehow fell out the 16-story window on 45th Street in New York and fell to his death. Uh, they found him in a snowbank, uh, very near death. On his last breath, a Catholic priest came along and gave him the last rites. He had one gumshoe on and one gumshoe off. Uh, very strange thing. Uh, and at the time, uh, it was remarked upon people couldn't understand what had happened. His wife um, uh, said it wasn't suicide, that he was fine, that he was, that he was in good shape. Um, but it was a strange death. But it was also a death by falling, which was a specialty of the KGB. They uh, mm -hmm. knew their way around this. And there was yet another witness uh, in the Alger Hiss trial by the name of Marvin Smith who was uh, a lawyer in the Justice Department. 
And he somehow fell six stories to his death on an inner stairwell in the Justice Department. He was the man who had signed the transfer document on Hiss's Ford Roadster, which he wanted to contribute to the Communist Party. And uh, he needed to get a legal document signed. And Marvin Smith, who was a friend of Alger Hiss going way back, had been the witness to that signing of that document. That document would have fairly conclusively proved that Hiss was a member of the Communist Party, if not a, if not a spy. And Marvin Smith uh, fell to his death. Uh, Harry Dexter White, who we just talked about, died mysteriously of a sudden heart attack at his home in New Hampshire, just days after testifying about Hiss, denied um, knowing if Hiss was a Communist Party member, denied being a, a spy himself. Um, he died suddenly of an overdose of digitalis um, at his home in New Hampshire. And talk about strange deaths. Alger Hiss, when he was in jail, just before he got out, was in jail with another Soviet spy who had been convicted of spying, William Remington, was murdered in Lewisburg Penitentiary uh, when, when uh, Hiss was in there. And he was bludgeoned to death by a couple of inmates, uh, and nobody had any motive for doing it. Uh, it was assumed that they were after something in his cell, uh, maybe to grab cigarettes or money, but it made no sense. Most likely, uh, William Remington had been killed by uh, by the KGB, or these guys had been hired by the KGB to murder him as a warning to Alger Hiss that if when he got out from prison just two weeks later, that he better keep his head down and keep quiet because what happened to William Remington what is going to happen to Hiss. So Hiss was under no doubt that uh, he better keep his mouth shut one way or the other. And he maintained his silence uh, throughout the 50s and 60s, right up to his death. Hold the phone. Hold the phone. No, hold it. Holding we it. did it again. We wait, did it again. This is a banana. This wait, 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 a phone. wait. Does someone need to hold the, something? I don't so, know. Should I hold the phone, guys? I don't know where that expression comes from, but I yeah, like it. I, I use it. Like a like I guess the day of landline phones, nobody's ever really told me to literally hold the phone. But what we mean oh, oh, is I think it means putting someone on hold. That's what it, oh, I think it's yeah. Sorry, that makes so much that, sense. Well, but guys, then there's the real question is where did the phrase being on hold come from? Like what where did that expression come from? Like like the holder. I don't know. I you're think, asking I think the, the, you're asking the big questions. We don't have time to enter, dig into that right now because it's been too much time. We actually have to have to end this episode. But we thought it was going to be like kind of a single topic discussion about a book. Ended up going so many other places with the very fascinating David Adams Cleveland. Um, so we're going to take a pause for this episode, and then we're going to come back with a whole other episode with David that goes into everything from art history to, to the current state of geopolitics. And I mean, honestly, I was just kind of blown away by oh. the guy's off-the-dome uh, fact dropping. And this is, uh, you know, longtime listeners of Ridiculous History or stuff they want you to know, you know uh, that that next conversation is umami for me. Uh, we are not blowing smoke. Uh, we are big fans of the book and uh, David Cleveland's work. Uh, we can't wait for you to check it out. So stay tuned for later this week on Thursday when we'll come with part two 
of our conversation with David Adams Cleveland on Gods of Deception and much, much more. Thanks as always to Mr. Max Williams. Thanks to Alex Williams. Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis, Jonathan Strickland, aka the Quister. Thanks to um let's let's thank Let's thank everybody, Noel. Thanks to Beetlejuice. I loved that film. The star or the or the fictional character? Both. You know what? Both. It's Friday. Thanks to the Cosmos for making. Thanks for thanks for making it Friday. The Cosmos. And thanks to Matt Frederick, of course, because yeah. you know he is the best among us. He is the best among us, and also the the star of our Max with the Facts uh, audio mm. bumper. So thanks for that. Uh, and thanks to you, ridiculous historians. You, you, y'all are the best. We love you very much uh, with all of our little uh, shriveled hearts. Mm-hmm. Speaking for myself, anyway. Well, you know it's it's time for the end of the episode. Can you do the line? We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, Smaller Ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.